Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be here with you all this morning. It's good to see some of your faces again, or half of them. Um, just by way of reminder, we are in an Advent series called The Eruption of the Kingdom. And we're looking at the first chapter in Luke's Gospel, where we get four scenes, four pretty distinct scenes prior to Jesus' birth that point us towards and prepare us for God's kingdom coming. Why do we say eruption? Well, because he's breaking in. He's entering into this world, bursting in and interrupting all of our regular existences, all the things that make sense to us, what's normal, what's rational. He's, he's interrupting all of that. He's coming through ordinary people, as Ed spoke about last week. He's preparing the way through some rather unexpected individuals. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah two weeks ago, we looked at this, and told him that a son would be born who would prepare the way for the Lord, who would turn the hearts of the people back to their God. But then Zechariah was rendered silent because he just couldn't believe that this could be possible. Last week, an angel appeared, we saw that an angel appeared to a young girl named Mary and said that a son would be born to her, that the other son to be born was going to point towards, and this son would be her son, but it would also be the son of the Most High. And alternatively to Zechariah, Mary believes what the angel says. Two weeks ago, we entered into the silence with Zechariah, struck by the news. Last week, we sat trembling with Mary, awed by the wonder of this news, wondering if it could actually be good news. And this week, we're drawn into the wonder and the joy of this good news that comes when we truly trust and believe that the impossible is possible. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading from verses 39 to 56. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. The words will also be up on the screen. We're going to start at verse 39 and read to verse 56. Luke writes this. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And then Mary said this, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months 
and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage is, I think, honestly, one of the loveliest narratives in all of scripture, and it's just packed with substance. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to put a spotlight on this interaction that we see happening between Mary and Elizabeth, and then we'll we'll briefly touch on Mary's uh, song or poem after that, okay? So we'll start with verses 39 and 40. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, so let's try to remember what happened prior to this, okay? We, Ed looked at this passage last week with you. Um, Mary was just visited by an angel, okay, and told that she's going to be impregnated even though there's no man involved in the process, okay? That's a rather daunting thing, a rather daunting message to receive and a little bit terrifying. Why? Because that would look a little bit scandalous in the eyes of your fellow Jewish neighbors and Jewish family members. Women could actually be stoned in worst case scenarios for this kind of thing, for a situation that looks like adultery. Not to mention that Mary's probably a little shaken up by what's just happened. I mean, angels were terrifying, okay? It's not like they were these happy... I mean, I love these, but it's not like they were these, these happy white things with, you know, glimmering shininess. They, they were terrifying. It's why they constantly are telling people, don't be afraid, because there's a reason to be afraid, okay? So she's probably a little shaken up. Who can she run to? Who can she turn to for advice, for wisdom, for guidance, for direction, for assurance? She, she can't go to her parents. They probably won't believe her. She can't run to Joseph. He might bring her before the authorities. She can't go to her best friends. They're probably too naive to understand. Who can she go to who will understand? There's only one person, and that's the person that the angel's already spoken to her about. Elizabeth. See, I I think it's entirely intentional that the angel told Mary about Elizabeth also bearing a child because it gives Mary someone to run to. Elizabeth was also in a position of needing to believe the unbelievable. To have a child in her old age was unbelievable. And Mary runs to the one person that she knows she can trust, who she doesn't need to be afraid of, who's a safe space for her, who will believe her. See, I think God has orchestrated this in such a personal and intentional way. Now, We don't know how Mary came running into Zechariah and Elizabeth's home, right? She might have come in bursting into the home, you know, snotty-nosed, mascara running, you know, tear stains all over her dress, fearing the worst-case scenarios in her mind. But, you know, her fears are immediately comforted when she walks into the room. Mary doesn't even have to say anything before she's affirmed that this is a safe place for her to work out what's just happened to her and what is going to happen. And apparently even Elizabeth needed some assurance because look at what happened when Mary ran in. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice how it's not the baby in Mary's womb that does something here. Okay? It's, not the, it's not the baby in Mary's womb that initiates this. The baby, the prophetic baby, who is called and tasked to prepare the way, leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and she is filled by the Holy Spirit. Thus far, in Luke's gospel, 
In each of these stories that we've looked at, someone is filled or encountered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, something is happening. Someone is doing something. Two weeks ago, we read that the angel told Zechariah that his son would be filled by the Holy Spirit before he was even born. Last week, the angel told Mary that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, i.e. would fill her, so that a child could be created within her. Now the child within Elizabeth, who already has the Spirit, leaps within her, and now she too is filled by the Holy Spirit. So who's the main character in this narrative? Who is the one that's moving and shifting and shaping? Who's the one that's providing assurance and comfort and bringing people together? Who's building bridges? I mean, just look at the chain reaction in this story. The prophetic baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, incites her to be filled by the Holy Spirit. She then can assure Mary of the baby that's within her womb and and heap encouragement on her. And then Mary, who's already had the Spirit fall on her, believes and is inspired to write a poem that will be sung for generations to come. Oh my goodness, what a story! What a miraculous event. You cannot read this narrative and not think that God's spirit is moving and doing something incredibly significant. You know, we often talk about Pentecost being the point where where God's spirit comes down and it does in a mighty way, in a powerful way, and that's incredibly significant. But here, here already, Luke is showing us we have men and women Servants of the Lord being filled by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is doing something. And Luke wants to make that point abundantly clear. God is doing something. And because of this, Elizabeth just bursts out and bubbles over with joy. Starting at verse 42, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. See, Elizabeth, now, evidently only by the spirit within her affirming her of this, she can confirm that Mary is carrying the Messiah, someone that Elizabeth will call my Lord. And the appropriate and Holy Spirit-inspired reaction to this good news is joy. Now, I want to I touch here for a few moments on that word joy before we look at Mary's poem that follows because that word, the word that's used for joy here isn't actually the regular Greek word used for joy, a general joy or gladness. That's the word kara. This, this word is actually a galiasis, which is an ext- it's more of a, an, an extreme joy, more associated with exaltation. It's a joy of welcome, of, of gladness, of praise, of adorning, of, of acknowledging God's saving acts. It's not, it's not just a joy joy that's kind of a happiness, but it's oriented towards someone. In other words, it's a worshipful joy. At the sound of your voice, says Elizabeth, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Worshipful joy. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, because at the sound of your greeting, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Why did this happen? 
What is the baby John doing? He's showing us what the appropriate response to the Messiah is. He's worshiping. His first prophetic task is leaping for joy in worship for the king who's just entered into the room, even in utero. Already, the angel's words to Zechariah are being fulfilled that John would be a joy and a delight, that he would go before the Lord and that he would prepare the people for his coming. He's already doing that. John is the first person in the Gospel of Luke to express joy. Already prophetically pointing towards the appropriate response to the coming of the Messiah. He's modeling for us what an appropriate response looks like. And then as if, as if the Holy Spirit within John and Elizabeth just pushes out any trepidation or fear right out of Mary, Mary is now able to embrace this same joy. This is exactly the kind of joy that we now see carried out in the rest of this story because now what do we see her doing? She's worshiping. Because what follows is some of the most beautiful and well-known verses in all of Scripture, composed by Mary herself, inspired by the breath of God within her, what many call Mary's Magnificat, and Magnificat being a Latin word for a song or canticle focused on these verses. These verses are a poetic prayer of, of praise and admiration, acknowledging the God who flips over power schemes, a poem that ultimately concludes in claiming God as a helper, highlighting the fact that God has come as he promised he would to help his people. He's helping his people. Mary speaks words here that are, have been chanted in cathedrals for centuries. Books have been written about these. You could do a whole Advent series just on, this, on these few verses. She speaks words that are steeped in, in Old Testament language. There's so many different allusions to different pieces of Scripture. And it reminds us that God's saving activity isn't anything new. There's a continuation that's happening here. But it's happening now in a rather unexpected and unique way. Mary, as Pastor Daryl Johnson has put it, is the first Christian theologian She's the first one to start putting the pieces together. He says this, that she's the first human being to reflect theologically on her son's birth. She's the first believer to articulate what this incarnation means for the world. In other words, she's the first to actually articulate what the good news is. She speaks words that Jesus will later preach on. And what is that good news? Well, it starts personal, and then we see her expand it out, verses 46 and onward. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Okay, notice here that Mary's not doing the happy dance because she gets to be the mother of the Messiah. Okay, that's not her focus. This has nothing to do with her, other than that the Lord has shown her favor. She knows that this isn't something she deserved. She knows that this isn't something special about her. Of anyone in the world, he picked a poor teenage girl from Nazareth. Why? 
Of all the people that he could have chosen, why insignificant Mary? Because this is what he does. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As Ed said last week, he chooses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. And if we don't grasp this, if we can't grasp that thing, that aspect, we won't get anything else that follows. Mary is speaking truths about God's character, that, that he could have gone the route of choosing the mighty and the powerful and the proud and the privileged and the posh, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He chose her, poor, humble, insignificant, young Mary. It didn't make any sense. But this is how God works. Because honestly, who else would have picked her for this role? She's not qualified. She doesn't have a cool family ancestry. She didn't go to school. She wasn't top of her class. But this is how he works. And so her joy, because of this, she realizes this, right? And her joy because of it just bubbles over into worship. And her focus is on the merciful character of a God whose proper ordering of things looks very different than our man-made structures. And we're not talking just on a personal level here. That's where she starts, but pretty quickly she expands the focus. Verses 51 beyond. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Those are some pretty big statements to make. Those have massive implications. The good news, folks, apparently isn't just personal. It's not just that Mary and all the rest of us have received a favor that we don't deserve. Obviously, that's massive. But this is a global thing. It's, it's political. It's socioeconomical. It, it's got massive implications for who actually has power in this world. And again, the appropriate response to this news and this reality is joy. I think the problem for us and the reason why we don't often allow ourselves to actually embrace this kind of joy is because we tend to sort of gloss over these words because they don't really apply to us. It doesn't, it, the gospel's not global for us. We don't need God to do mighty things. As one scholar put it, we're really happy to be left in peace and enjoy our accustomed standard of living. Here, particularly, we're happy to continue existing in our man-made structures. They work for us. They work, we work well within it. We don't need God to do mighty things, or at least we don't think we do, because we're kind of fine with the way things are, you know? We, we tend to over-spiritualize these words and kind of loosely apply it to ourselves because they're just not the kind of words that we want to see on our Hallmark Christmas cards, you know? You send a bunch of them in the mail and like, oh, yes, <laughs> God has, you know, filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Merry Christmas, here's your $7 card, right? That's not... It's just not something we want to see. We don't want to think about these things, but we have to open up our eyes to see Mary's words intersecting with our own society as well. Otherwise, we won't see the whole picture. 
We won't see our own blind spots. We won't see the weak in our society. Those who are humble, those who are hungry. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopalian priest in New York, I quoted her a couple weeks ago, she illustrates how, how Mary's words need to be interpreted for our own Western context as well. She uses some pretty basic examples. She says this, you know, in many of the world's cities, the affluent people live in the hills overlooking the common herd below. In New York City where I work, she says, the penthouse serves the same function. Human nature being what it is, a lot of our enjoyment, she says, or I would say our joy, a lot of our enjoyment and our joy in life comes from having things that others don't have. I'll say that again. A lot of our enjoyment in life comes from having things that others don't have. Part of the fun of traveling first class, I imagine, she says, is that that curtain that separates you from the lower orders in the back of the plane. Well, she says, one of the themes of the Bible is that God is going to tear down that curtain and he's going to flatten the hills. Sounds like it might take all the fun out of it for the rest of us. But she says this, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus is not going to be easy for you and me. It means laying ourselves open to God's great leveling operation, which is what Mary's talking about, right? A leveling of power schemes, an overturning of structures. It means relinquishing our most cherished strategies and defenses. It means being ready at all times to relinquish one's own special privileges in the world on behalf of those who might be very different from oneself. See, grasping Mary's words in this text and grasping the character of the God that she's trying to tell us about means opening up our minds to the great disparities of our world. Because for others, for many others, Mary's words are liberating. They bring hope. They bring purpose. They bring worshipful joy for people who are actually caught up in oppressive structures, beneath tyrannical rulers or authorities who lead by fear, to know that there's a God who scatters the proud, who exalts the underdog, that's good news. To know that there's a God who sees the poor and the humble and the weak, who puts his favor on them whose mercy is fixated on those who need him, that's good news. Think of what Mary's words mean for Christians, say, living in North Korea. There's no hope. There are no answers for them unless it's true that there's a God whose power is greater than the powers that be. In certain contexts and countries of the world, you know, Christians have to be careful about even using these in their services because these words mean something. Mary's words put the rulers of this world in their proper place beneath the authority of God and that is a joyful endeavor. That's a joyful endeavor to proclaim these words. It's not aggressive. It's not violent. It's not angry. It's joyful. And if we're unsure whether or not he truly holds the whole world in his hands, you know, Mary here assures us, the whole earth is the Lord's 
and everything in it. All will bow down to the true king of this world. We may not understand in the meantime why certain countries have to suffer more than others, why certain people have to be submitted to weakness more than others, why certain countries or people or societies are more blessed with freedoms than others. But you know, we join our brothers and sisters around the world in acknowledging and trusting the God who uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, who lifts up the humble and humbles those who have been lifted. One of my former professors, Sarah Williams, says this in her book, Shaming the Strong. The way in which a culture treats the weak tells you all you need to know about its attitude towards people. And I would say the same could be true for the church. The way a culture, the way in which a culture treats the weak tells you all you need to know about its attitude towards people. What is the good news for the weak in our society? Who are the weak, the humble, the poor, the defenseless, the ones without a voice? And how do Mary's words of hope reach them? What might inspire them to worship full joy? How might we be like Elizabeth for the Marys of this world who are afraid who have reason to fear, who don't know what's coming ahead. As Rutledge puts it, if there were news, what, she says with this, what if there were news, not only for the woman in the mink coat, but also for the man on death row? News not only for the fearful, but also for the numb. News not only for the homeless, but also for those of us who are afraid of the homeless. News not only for the would-be innocent, but also for those of us who know ourselves to be frauds. What is the message of Christmas? For the weak, for the humble, for the hungry. What is the message for all of us who know that we need a Savior? Because, folks, the power of joy, the power of the kind of joy that we read about in this text is that it has the ability to lift us, or should I say it has the ability to kick us into the joy of Christ's coming and what that means for the world. This needs to sink deeply into our hearts and to inspire us to want to see his coming again, to long for him to come again. So that we can see Mary's words come to fruition, come to fullness. That we can see the world turn. Because it's out of this place of joy, this kind of joy that Mary composes these words. When she'd been ushered into a posture of marvel and wonder and hope and anticipation, here in her song we see a shift from, in Mary from fear to courage. From uncertainty to affirmation, from worry to joy, she leaves those things behind because she's taken on a posture of worshipful joy. Mary's words are the gospel before the gospel. They are Jesus' teachings before he teaches them. 33 years before Calvary, good news is being declared by a young teenage girl from Nazareth that the prophets were right. 
that God chooses the humble and the insignificant and the weak things to change the world, that he uses the weak to shame the strong, that he uses a baby to flip over an empire and a crucified lamb to save the world. Family, this is the wonder of Christmas. It's the wonder of the incarnation that God would come down to submit himself to those he created and bring joy. And for John to kick that kind of joy into Elizabeth and then incite her to pass it on to Mary implies that this is an appropriate response for all of us. It's a posture for all of us to take on. It's the appropriate response to the arrival of the king. So, may John the Baptist kick that message into all of us so that we can all receive that internal kingdom kick and be inspired by the Holy Spirit to draw near to the infant this season, to see his message of hope and joy for the world, and to worship him. Would you pray with me? Living God, we pray this morning, Lord, that your words would sink deeply into our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would inspire us to worship you with joy. We pray, Lord, that we would be an inspiration to those in our society who need you, that we would see, Lord, the weak, the humble, the insignificant. That we would know, Lord, that you use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Many of us, Lord, are strong. And we pray that we would be humbled by you. That when we think upon you as an infant, Lord, that your humility would humble us and remind us, Lord, that this is the way of your kingdom. May this not bring us fear. May this not bring us worry, Lord. May this bring us sheer joy. Because we know, Lord, that you hold all things. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.